experienced this last week. She's trying to renew her daughter's passport. It wasn't in the U.S. It was elsewhere. They have a dual citizenship thing. But the first time she took it in, the official at the post office said, um, nope, it's on the wrong form. Rejected. Okay, so she tried again, but this time she was told that the photo was the wrong size. Anyone ever tried to take a passport photo at home? That's fun, right? Okay, fine. With that issue corrected, there were just a few other tiny details. For instance, uh, we can't accept your form. The signatures are in blue ink. They have to be in black. Uh, no, your daughter's head is slightly off-center. Uh, no, the signatures cannot be written over in black ink either. No, I'm afraid there's a small white halo surrounding her head. <laughs> and at this point, full of frustration, which she was freely sharing with her friends on Facebook, she sought the services of a different post office on the other side of town that was known for being supposedly a little more tolerant. Still no luck. She brought in new photos, and the photos were okay, but now a line on the marriage certificate was too faint and blurry for them to read. Furthermore, apparently they are not allowed to witness one another's signatures as a husband and wife. At this point, she said, I think I'm getting a new understanding for the phrase going postal. <laughs> and finally, the final indignity, it was rejected once more because the husband's signature extended outside its box. Seventh try, I think, is a charm. She finally found a kind postal worker who would accept their application. Now, if you peeked ahead at today's text, you might think that I was telling this story just to sort of set up in your mind the image of this overzealous, pedantic bureaucrat nitpicking at every little box and line and color of ink on the form. But I also wanted you to get in touch with that like, intense frustration that you feel, that you want, that you really need to have something accepted. And you're starting to feel unable to figure out precisely how do I perform? How do I conform to avoid yet another rejection? And the fear was really growing. They had a trip planned to come back and visit. If I can't get this passport, we won't be able to go. So as I read the scripture this evening, I invite you to listen reflectively. As we hear this, what feelings does it bring up for you? And with whom in that passage do you identify? I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 11, finishing up that chapter as Chris has been taking us through it. And I'm starting at verse 37, which is on page 1042, if you want to use your pew Bibles. Would you stand with me and we'll read. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people! Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect the justice and love of God. 
you should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. Now one of the experts in the law answered him, <clears throat> Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testified that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, open your word to us tonight. That through this seemingly harsh message, you would speak to us and touch us in our hearts and in our situation. Thank you that you are good. Thank you that your word is good news to us. Amen. So it has to be admitted that this passage isn't great fun to read, right? We'd rather read a story, thanks, something with a plot, a narrative, some characters, um, or maybe one of those astonishing miracles Jesus does. And we never mind hearing promises and blessings. In fact, we'll gladly pick them out of any context that they might come packaged in. But here we have conflict and accusations and, yes, rejection. I'm going to guess that the passage actually makes a lot of us a little bit uncomfortable. It kind of does for me. We might feel inclined to skim over it quickly because if we linger too long, we might have to start listening to that little voice in the back of our heads. The one that says, ooh, am I a hypocrite too? In fact, would others reject me if they really knew what I'm like? Wait, uh, God does know. Uh-oh. This is a passage that draws sharp contrasts and demands a clear response. But I think if you'll stick with me, please put those uncomfortable feelings aside for a minute and stick with this because I think you're going to find that it also delivers this profoundly good news in a somewhat upside-down way. So I'm going to zero in on three contrasts, if you will, that the text suggests. We're going to look at insides and outsides. We're going to talk about prophets and Pharisees, and then responses or rejection. So first, insides and outsides. Because clearly, there's something going on with that in this passage. Our setting is that a Pharisee has been hearing Jesus preach, and he asks Jesus to come 
and eat with them. It's not exactly have dinner. It's more like lunch. Come have lunch with me. And the Pharisees, when they would eat with a respected scholar or teacher, would expect to hear something about his teaching and, and maybe have a good vigorous debate and ask him questions and poke and prod at it a little bit. There would be some lively discussion. But before they even get to that point, they get hung up as they notice that Jesus has gotten ready to eat. He's sitting down, and he hasn't ritually washed his hands before the meal. Why is this such a big deal? Okay, first, let's get this straight. It's not about dirt, and it's not about germs. Kids, I know you're up here with me today, so tell me, if you've been playing outside, maybe in the sandbox, maybe with the mud pies, and you come inside, and you sit down for lunch, what's your mom or dad likely to say? That was my kid. <laughs> right? Did you wash your hands? Okay, what about if you go to the bathroom and you come out too quickly? What are they going to say then? Did you wash? I mean, they're not like visibly dirty, Mom. What's the deal? Well, sure. I remember maybe I was here a few weeks ago and we talked about microscopes and how it was only about 300 years ago that we figured out that there was this whole world of germs. So it took even longer than that for doctors to figure out that if they would just wash their hands in between patients, they wouldn't spread an infection through the whole hospital. So if you can put yourself in a time capsule and go back to the Pharisees, even though we know about the world of germs, so kids, yes, please, do wash your hands. The Pharisees are up to something else entirely. Their hand washing is a ritual act. It's connected to their whole symbolic system, the way they see the world. In fact, the word that's used for it is baptize. Teacher, why didn't you baptize your hands before you came to eat with us? Before we go any further, we're going to have to spend a few minutes figuring out what that whole system was about, maybe getting to know these Pharisee creatures a little bit. It can be tricky, because in the New Testament, they pretty uniformly get a bad rap. They're like the very stereotype of a hypocrite. You want to call someone a hypocrite, you say, you legalistic Pharisee, you. And actually, I think it serves us well in this passage, like on first look, to read them as such, right? Because if we can just be like, oh, Jesus versus Pharisees, Pharisees, bad guys, put that in a box, put it on the back shelf of the mind, and not really worry about it too much, so much the better for us. Here's a few things. Pharisees are kind of being re-understood by scholars in the biblical world recently. We're suspecting they weren't really in the majority, weren't necessarily in control of the Jewish religious system. They certainly weren't the people in control of the temple. They weren't all professional religion scholars, although some of them were set scribes and lawyers who interpret the law. Some are Pharisees and some are not. Some Pharisees are scholars and some are just farmers and everyday business people. So this, those two sets overlap but are not the same. The Pharisees were basically a sect who took purity to an extra level. They wanted to attain for themselves the level of purity that the Old Testament law required for a priest. Not, not for just the people in general. So like in Leviticus 21, you'll see some laws about what priests can and can't do. And there's actually gradations. It's like a priest can do this around dead bodies. A high priest has to be even more strict. The Pharisees wanted to be the strictest in their interpretation of the law that they could. 
Why would that be? Like, why would you look at the law and want to go an extra step beyond? Isn't it hard enough already? Like, traditionally, that purity is seen as a re- prerequisite for encountering God. Like Moses at Mount Sinai tells the people, purify yourselves in all these ways before you approach the mountain where God is meeting us. So if we're charitable, maybe the Pharisees, mostly living in Jerusalem, wanted to be able to enter the temple at any given moment. I just need to live so pure that I don't have to worry about taking steps to cleanse myself first. I can always go encounter God. Or perhaps they saw purity as like a good in itself. Just purity for purity's own sake. This wouldn't be exceptional, because a great deal of human religious behavior has to do with dividing things up into what's clean and what's unclean. And by the time Luke was writing, we should note, the Romans had wiped out Jerusalem and there was no longer a temple. So anyone who was still living in the tradition of the Pharisees was doing so for what reason? There wasn't a temple to go to. There were two specific aspects of the law they were really known for observing, both of which are referenced in this passage. One was the tithe, giving God a tenth of everything that the land produces. That's required in the law, but strictly speaking, it's required for the farmer, like the person who raises the animals or the food, sends the tithe, all's well. The consumer who maybe buys some food from the farmer isn't supposed to really have to worry about whether that food was tithed on. But the Pharisees want to be extra sure. They want to remove any possible uncertainty. So they take on themselves that obligation. I'm going to tithe on everything I get. The second law that was really important to them comes from Numbers 21. It has to do with how you're ritually unclean after being in contact with a dead body. And it is an obligation for all of Israel. So if you've touched a dead body or been in the tent with a dead body, you have seven days of impurity, and then you cleanse yourself, and then you come back into the community and and before God. By Jesus' time, though, they had extended this into a fairly elaborate system. The idea, they thought, behind the law was that the human body images the living God, and you can't pollute that image with any kind of contact with death. Furthermore, your shadow, here's my shadow, is an extension of yourself. So you can't, like, let your shadow, if this was the dead body, I can't let my shadow fall on the body, or the funeral procession, or the tomb, or the house where there was a dead body. It's getting kind of elaborate, right? In fact, they would mark tombs, which were usually kind of inconspicuous, like a cave in the rock. It was polite to whitewash the tombs when there was a festival, so the pilgrims coming to the festival wouldn't accidentally walk by and overshadow the tomb, and, uh uh-oh, now I'm polluted, now I'm impure. Quite the system they had going on. Furthermore, it wasn't just human corpses they were worried about. A dead fly could contaminate your table. A dead fly could contaminate the vessels on the table. You had to worry about whether your vessel was covered or uncovered. Two famous rabbis had a running disagreement over when you had to clean that vessel. Did you just need to clean the outside, or did you have to do the outside and the inside? This is pretty complicated stuff, right? The Pharisees' own name for themselves 
was trusted ones in Hebrew. So if you were dealing, if you were wanted to be a Pharisee and you were dealing with another, doing business with another Pharisee, then you can trust that he's tithed all that produce and everything he's selling you is clean and you can take it to your table. That's who they wanted to be. Obviously, observing those really strict practices around something so common as eating really did separate them out from the not trusted. So with that background, we can see how in this conversation, these aren't just like random like shots that Jesus is taking in the dark. Everything he says is connected to one of their practices. But he introduces a new element. This idea of like moral purity about the inside of you. You clean all those dishes, but you are full of grasping and wickedness. There's a parallel passage to this in Matthew where he basically says, so clean the inside and the outside will work itself out. Like in some sense, Matthew is still playing within that system, right? Insides and outsides, just extending the idea of purity into this moral realm. Luke doesn't let us have it quite so straightforward. It's kind of curious, actually. I would say he pushes us not to read this as just a simple, well, there's who you are on the outside, and there's who you are on the inside. It's probably a good thing, because we're too easy as modern people to go to that. We're really used to separating those things pretty strongly. But a lot of ancient people wouldn't have seen things that way. They would see the human being as a more holistic package. For instance, the Hebrew formula for righteousness in the Psalms is clean hands and a pure heart. It's the whole deal. The Pharisees certainly saw their external reaction, their external actions, as connected to their purity, their internal cleanliness. I would say Jesus isn't even claiming like a special knowledge. I mean, he was God, he could have been, but I don't think he's claiming a special knowledge of their heart condition. I think he's saying, actually, who you are is pretty obvious. You love to walk around and take the best places in the synagogue. You like those respectful greetings. That's pretty easy to see. And especially he zeroes in on their greed, their graspingness. There are some other exchanges in the Gospels where he calls out really specific ways that they've used the law to be technically correct while exploiting people around them. So if they've been fated the administrator of an estate that's due to a widow, they would charge themselves hefty fees for the job they did, thus devouring what the widow had to live on. Or they would abuse a rule where you could dedicate possessions to God in order to get out of having to support their own parents. It wasn't all just about their insides. The hypocrisy isn't really when your insides and outsides don't match. What you are inside will come out sometime. Hypocrisy is when we behave one way in front of people that we respect and we want to think well of us, and a different way, either when we're by ourselves or with those that, eh, I have power over you or your opinion doesn't really count. Right? And it's much more common than we want to admit because most of us are in this constant state of fearing rejection. Like, I'm convinced that if you saw me on an ugly day with my kids, you'd probably never ask me to come back here and teach again. Truth? To borrow a term flying around a lot lately on the internet, we might even say the Pharisees were engaged in virtue signaling. That's like a public display which signals, hey, 
I have all these virtues, characteristics, and you know, behaviors that are associated with whatever group you want to name that you want to be identified with. And Jesus' rebuke is just stunning at how it cuts across all factors, all, pol all the politics, all the religious types, the edgy progressives. We all do this because it's about our identity. Like the Pharisees want to be the trusted ones. See, the Pharisees saw group identity, and I'm going to borrow here from two theologians and scholars who spoke at Covenant Midwinter, Deborah and Alan Hirsch. This may come from elsewhere, but I heard it from them, so I'll give them credit. The Pharisees saw identity in terms of what we call a bounded set. Okay? That's where there's inside and there's outside. And so you've got this set and all the people inside the set. These are the good ones who identify with us, and they all have some characteristic in common. And you've got the people outside out here, and the very clear lines, except... Inevitably, when you have a bounded set, you spend a ton of time arguing right over here at the line. Where is it exactly? Is it fair? Is it fair? How much can I get away with? Because it doesn't really matter if you're on this part of the set or here. You're just, you're in. That's the thing. And it's rather too easy to see all the people out here who don't keep things clean as themselves a bit unclean. The bad guys go out there. When we use purity things as identity markers like this, we almost always focus on the don'ts, right? We are the people who don't do that thing. But there's always two sides to God's law, right? There's a don't and there's a do. Don't pollute yourself with idols. Do welcome the stranger. So what if we fail just as much to live up to an identity in Christ by omitting the do's as by committing the don'ts? What if we were the people known for the things we did? That'd be great. So for all the Pharisees' concern with identity signaling, there's this huge irony in the way Jesus calls them unmarked graves. Right? You're like a polluted tomb that someone could just stumble over without even knowing it. People who follow you are deceived into thinking that they're following life and they're really getting death. Jesus' prescription for what ails his hosts similarly focuses on a positive action. You need to embody mercy and justice. Give generously to the poor from what is inside, which is a little bit obscure, but probably what's inside those dishes, like the food they're feasting on. Give. Like the scrupulous tithing had not made them generous. Maybe after they tithed down to that last pinch of herbs, then they could be like, check, I did what was required. The other 90% is mine right wouldn't that just be like us and when jesus says okay so give to the poor and oh look like behold he says everything is clean for you that gives some commentators fits like some people are like he must be just like sarcastically quoting what the pharisees would say because he can't possibly be saying that giving charity would somehow cover up your sins or make up for it their inner wickedness right but that doesn't make sense the Pharisees emphatically do not see everything as clean, right? Whereas we do have an echo of this kind of idea further on in Luke, in the second volume, if you will, the Acts of the Apostles. Because there God challenges Peter's idea about the food purity laws by saying, don't call impure anything which God has made clean. 
it really does seem that Luke understands Jesus as upending their whole ritual purity system. He appeals to the nature and character of God. The same God made the outside and the inside. The same generous creator who made all of this and gave it to humankind as gift. So they're giving huge attention to these distinctions, inside, outside, pure, impair, but neglecting to imitate the generosity of God. Well, that's only the beginning. You'd think, like, Jesus could have stopped there, right? But no, he launches into this huge tirade of woes. This is where things really start to get uncomfortable. In fact, the greater theologian is John Calvin thought, you know, Luke must have taken a lot of stuff that Jesus tended to say about the Pharisees and kind of condensed it all into this scene. And the reason he thought that was because he couldn't believe that as a dinner guest, Jesus would possibly have been this rude to his host. Yeah, he gets up and just lets them have it. I'm actually not quite sure that I agree with Calvin's reasoning. Here's why. Luke makes a point of calling Jesus as he starts this whole rejoinder to their question. The Lord. Like Jesus is the one who can never just be a guest. I think I'll have all this and little Jesus to go along with it. No. Right? He's not entering into their mode of like, hey, we're going to dispute a little bit about the received tradition. He's here speaking for God. He's in the mode of a prophet. A prophet brings a direct communication from God and not the legal scholar who slices and dices and kind of tries to figure out what was meant by what was said before. Even as a prophet, we need to notice Jesus isn't cursing them and he isn't threatening them. That's important. This woe to, woe to you, woe to you, it's an established genre with Hebrew prophets, right? But as far as we can tell, it, it doesn't come from like a curse formula. It's not like some general expression of wisdom. If you keep doing that, the consequences will be obvious. It's not that either. This word woe in Greek is just kind of this transcription from the Hebrew word. It's like hoy. It's an expression of grief. It's mourning. It's sadness for the way that they're walking. The prophet is saying, this is the road I see that you're on, and it breaks God's heart. I looked at a well-known scholar named Luke Timothy Johnson. He says that Luke's main, one of, one of Luke's main ways of portraying Jesus is as a prophet. A prophet is one who is led by the Spirit of God. You think back to when Jesus announced his ministry in his hometown. The Spirit of God has anointed me. Who speaks God's word to humans. Who embodies the word that he speaks. Some common ways of doing that are the prophet's poverty. The itinerancy, moving around, not being settled in one place. The prophet's life of prayer. The prophet enacts God's vision for the wider society. So Old Testament prophets were known for some pretty strange stunts, right? They act out the word. They break clay vessels, and they wear strange clothes, and they give their children some pretty strange names, and one of them marries a prostitute. It's kind of funny. They're not decent and respectable people. It's in that context I think we should see Jesus' action in this passage. I don't think he comes in and like, oops, I forgot to wash. I don't even think it's that, well, he doesn't usually do it, so he just didn't this time. I think it's a prophetic action. They wanted some nice chat, and he wanted to engage them, get, um, 
hooked on what he was about to say. Prophets and Pharisees are deeply contrasted here in that the prophetic life is marked by integrity. The prophet embodies the word that's to be communicated at the cost of the prophet's own comfort or respectability, maybe even life. And because of this oddity and the way they call out uncomfortably people's actions, the true prophet encounters opposition and rejection and persecution. That's what Jesus takes up with the scribes in turn, the legal scholars. There's one who's like, okay, Jesus, maybe the -the run-of-the-mill Pharisee is like that, but some of us here know better, we're educated. You know, surely you don't mean us too. Oh, yes, I do. In fact, he says, your hypocrisy is nowhere more clear than the way you make a big deal out of honoring, dressing up the tombs of the prophets. You could see some of these tombs in Jerusalem at the time. But you've actually rejected those sent to speak God's word to your own generation. Rejecting a prophet is a big deal in Luke. It's what reveals and or seals your spiritual state. Because rejecting the prophet cuts off the avenue of a fresh and genuine communication with God. So in Luke 7, he told us that the Pharisees had rejected the ministry of John the Baptist. That was a strong clue that they were headed down the wrong path. This kind of a prophetic word is not in itself a rejection. It's an invitation. It calls for a wholehearted response. Because to confront someone with their sin is an act of mercy. And they have an opportunity. So that's why I had us read Psalm 51 first in this service. The superscript to that psalm connects it with the time that David was caught behaving very badly with Bathsheba. And Nathan the prophet came to him and told him so, using this vivid parable to catch his attention before saying, and that is you. So the tradition connects this psalm of penitence with that time, and it shows us a model of how one could respond to the word of the prophet. See, the psalmist appeals to God's character. Have mercy on me according to your loving kindness, O God. The psalmist brings the sin out into the open, freely acknowledging it. Hey, this is not just an offense against my fellow people, but against you, O God. You have all the language of washing and cleansing, but it's something God has to do. I think the psalmist even names the sinner's deepest fear. Do not cast me from your presence. Do not take your spirit from me. And then here's the great irony. In the psalm, he says, when I'm restored and I praise you, I will teach sinners your ways. Which is precisely what the Pharisees claimed they would do, but could not. So in our story, there is rejection. But it's not Jesus who's doing the rejecting. The Pharisees, sadly, do not choose the response of David. There's no repentance at the end of this story. Just angry indignance. They resolve to basically hunt Jesus down, trap him saying something that they can take to the authorities. And instead of naming their own sin, they want to accuse him. The prophet Micah once told Israel, this is what the Lord requires of you. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. 
And so according to Jesus, they basically failed on every point of that. There is sharp contrast in this text, but it isn't between pure and impure, and it isn't between inside and outside. It's between their whole religious understanding and the heart of God communicated in Jesus. So let's take each of the ways that Jesus um, condemns the scribes and Pharisees, and like a rock, like turn it over and see what's underneath. They've neglected the love and justice of God. There's a promise under there. We can begin from God's character as the generous creator, the perfect model of love and justice. The Pharisees consider themselves trusted. We're invited to trust in God's mercy and loving kindness. They love public recognition for their virtue. We're invited to publicly confess our sin and brokenness. I like this one. They stringently avoided any contact with death because it might pollute the image of the living God in them. Jesus took the image of humanity and died and rose and overcame death completely. It couldn't pollute him. It couldn't touch him. It could not hold him. They load people down with heavy burdens and Jesus says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. You don't have to, to run around trying to fulfill all those checklists and get the boxes signed in just the right place. I make this easy for you to follow. They honor the memory of prophets and they reject God's messengers. Jesus calls the church to the way of the prophet. Live in an authentic connection with God and embody that integrity. And then finally, they don't enter the kingdom and they actually hinder those who are coming. There's this whole crowd of people who would want to come in, and they're keeping them out. Jesus welcomes all who are coming. See, as opposed to bounded sets, the other kind of set is the centered set. In the centered set, it's not about where the boundary is. It's about what's in the middle. And everything... And everyone around here is drawn to the middle or repelled from it. So the Hirsches tell a story how they talked to a farmer in Australia where they come from. And they said, um, you don't have any fences. How do you keep your sheep in? And he said, we don't need fences. We dig a well. The sheep will never go too far away. So in this kind of set, Everyone is either on their way towards or out of the kingdom, no matter how close they might appear to the center. Everyone's either orienting towards Jesus or perhaps away, like the Pharisees. That'll turn your world upside down if you think on that for a while. I hope after today, when you read this text or one like it, you never find yourself again shrinking back Try to suppress that uncomfortable recognition that your own inevitable hypocrisy will somehow disqualify you from the kingdom. I hope instead you always hear that there's an invitation in the prophetic rebuke. So instead of struggling to stay on the right side of that boundary, you're simply invited, wherever you are, to turn and orient towards Jesus. He's the source of life, the living water, and the source of God's love for us.
Thank you, God, for this word. May you bring it home to each heart as your spirit knows and intends for each of us today. Thank you for loving us that much. Thank you for conquering death and filling us with your life.